0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Wheelchair racer Christy Dawes is a fierce competitor in a seriously intense sport. She's competed at seven Paralympics, most recently in Tokyo at the age of 40, and she's got three Paralympic medals. Christy also races in international marathons. Her life has been filled with moments of glory as well as disaster and a serious near miss at the Boston Marathon that she will never, ever forget. Christy's also been a teacher and she sometimes goes on air at ABC Newcastle. I spoke to Christy in 2021 and this year she competed at the Birmingham Commonwealth Games where she finished fourth in the marathon. Hi, Christy.
0: Thanks, Richard.
1: When you compete in a marathon in your wheelchair, what's your secret superpower, Christy? What are you particularly good at?
0: Uh, Well, I'm good at climbing. I'm really light, little, 46 kilos. So I, I go uphill pretty quickly and pretty easily. And I'm also not afraid of a downhill. So I've got no fear of downhills or corners. So they would have to be my strengths, I think.
1: <laughs> See, I know nothing about the mechanics of these wheelchair races. They look they look pretty cool. They sort of look like dragsters, don't they? Um, going uphill is obviously seriously hard work. I can't imagine in what world anyone would enjoy going uphill. Do you enjoy it or is it just, is something you're just good at?
0: No, I don't mind it actually. Louise Savage, a great Paralympic wheelchair racer, always said, Never look at the top of a hill and I never do that. I just get in a rhythm and get up there as fast as I can. But of course you're not just doing marathons to to do them and achieve something. You're actually racing them. So you might set your own pace up the hill, but then one of your opponents might have different ideas. So you've got a you've got no choice but to go with them. So it can be pretty painful at times, but gee, it's good fun.
1: And when you go downhill, do you just sort of take your hands off the wheels and go down like a total hoon or what? how does that work?
0: Yeah, so you take your hand, you push off the top of a hill to get up the maximum speed and then you tuck in. So it's a lot like cycling and um, there's a lot of aerodynamics involved. So you tuck in, you tuck in your elbows, you put your head down, you try and, try and choose a good line, one that preferably doesn't have any cat eyes or sewer lids or anything on the ground <laughs> or potholes. Try yeah. and choose a good, nice, smooth line and just tuck in, put your head down and let yourself roll with it.
1: Yeah. And those corners you're talking about, is that a pretty high stakes thing given that just suppose you've got to be, be looking at the moment when you can go as fast as you possibly can without tumbling from, from your wheelchair. Is, is that how it works?
0: Yeah, and just making sure that you choose a good line and you can line it up and think that you're okay to take that corner at speed. But then, you know, if you've got somebody in front of you, it's the gentleman's rule that you let them go and you don't interfere. You don't go on somebody's inside the women are quite democratic and we're quite respectable of each other. The men are are not so much. They, You know, if, in a race, the if you see a pothole, the girls will kind of will point it out for each other and the boys just go straight over the top of it and drag everyone else with them. So um, it's pretty rough for the boys. But, you know, we've got a pretty good bunch of girls and um, people talk about the rivalries between athletes and athletes from different countries, but they often don't focus on the, the great friendships and the immense amount of respect between them And that's what I really love about our sport and the girls in it is that we do have an immense amount of respect for each other. And if it wasn't for each other, we wouldn't be able to, to do what we love. So we have to be thankful for that.
1: You, you say you're physically small. Is that an advantage or, or are there advantages in having a bigger body weight when you're trying to get along in, in your wheelchair?
0: Yeah, so on hillier courses, it's an advantage for courses like Boston and New York where there's rolling hills and in New York where you're pushing up over those big bridges, you know, the Verrazano and all that sort of stuff, it's definitely an advantage to be lighter. But when you're on a flat course, if you're a bit heavier, you've got that weight and when you get going, that momentum and that weight just helps you roll along a flat course really nicely. So flat courses are a lot more work for me because I don't roll as well on the flat.
1: And is it like cycling? Do you have to slipstream or is it wise to slipstream behind someone else?
0: Absolutely. So we usually take our turns that we'll maybe take half a K, a K at a time each, and we'll get into a nice long line. And once the girl out the front's finished, because obviously if you're out the front and there's a headwind, the person out the front's doing a lot more work. And the cadence or the arm speed, if you watch somebody in a pack, whoever's out the front, you'll often see that their arm speed, they're often doing twice the amount of pushes as the people sitting in behind the pack. So when you're sitting in behind, you get a nice rest. You get to sort of catch your breath and then you do your work out the front and it sort of just goes along like a tunnel ball. Everybody has their turn and occasionally you get somebody who will be second in position and the person from the front will pull off and they'll peel off with them so they avoid having their turn. We let that go for, yeah, maybe 15, 20K. But if you're getting to 25, 30K and they haven't had a turn out the front, then... It's time to say something. You see, this sounds.
1: I am a man, and this sounds a bit weird to me. It sounds weirdly cooperative for a race, aren't you? Aren't you supposed to be trying to get ahead and sort of pull out of the slipstream and overtake?
0: Well, at the end of the day, you're trying to be in as less pain as possible and go as fast as possible, and that means working together. Working together makes it easier for everybody, and then there might be sort of a an unspoken rule that in the last five or ten k, it's every man and woman for themselves. Oh, but I see. You know, 42K is a long time, so it's only going to help you if you can get with someone or get with a nice pack of workers. It's only going to benefit everybody.
1: Right, so you're not jostling for position because it's such a long race. In other words, it's really about endurance and, and mastery over time then.
0: Yeah, getting into a rhythm, taking turns, sort of knowing what distance everyone's going to do out the front and... um being ready to go when somebody makes a break and being able to sprint in the middle of a marathon and do that numerous times if you have to. That's a killer, that one.
1: All those um, chairs are built for speed, obviously, and for uh, light body weight. How comfortable mm. are they?
0: Oh, they're not too bad for me. I can't feel my legs. So when you're effectively in a kneeling position, and when you're in that position, my fastest time for marathon is one hour 36, but you're often in your chair for well over two hours between the time you get in and warm up and do the race and then cool down. So that's a long time to have your body in a kneeling position for. The things that get knocked around the most for me are my ribs at the side. If you do a race like Chicago or New York, the roads are as rough as guards. So your ribs hitting that side guard constantly takes a big toll on them. My wrists and my elbows and shoulders have surprisingly held up really well. You hear athletes brag about how many sessions that they do every, oh, I've done 12 sessions and I do this many gym sessions, but you never hear people brag about how many recovery sessions they do or how much time they spend stretching. And I think the boring mundane stuff of stretching and resting is really underrated and I think that's played a massive part in my longevity in being able to do, do my sport for so long and having my body held up so well for a sport that demands so much of it.
1: I mentioned at the start the uh, Boston Marathon you took part in in 2013. You were in the women's wheelchair division of the Boston Marathon. When you were racing that day, what was your performance like?
0: Boston's a hard one. You either have a cracking day with a great tailwind or you have a terrible day with a headwind the whole way so it's either the best race or the worst race i've had my best time of 136 there and i've had my worst time of 2 hours 15 there so it's really a mixed bag that day i think it actually was a pretty good day because of the events i don't even remember my time or my place but i remember probably feeling quite content i probably got a top 6 or top 7 finish feeling quite content with my finish that day. But it's funny, I can't remember anything about it.
1: (laughs) You were in town that day with your husband and coach, Andrew, and your son, who was a toddler back then. Tell me what happened after the race.
0: Uh, We finished the race. Nobody is in a hurry to get back, really get anywhere after a marathon. Everyone's buggered. And it's exciting for us. You know, they're really eventful. If you've gotten a good pack during the race, you want to talk about it and kind of debrief and look at what's going on. And that was always the way that we did things, sit around. And we sat around for a while and then we went back to the room and I was, you know, you're buggered, you're completely depleted. And my husband said, you're exhausted, lay and rest and I'll take Charlie out. I'll take him for a walk and we'll do something. And a friend of ours, Dorian, uh, she's an American, she's a organiser of the New York Marathon every year. She said, right at the finish, she said, there's a candy store right at the finish. It has a big blue M&M outside. You can't miss it. You have to take Charlie to the candy store. And Dorsey said, I'll take Charlie to the candy store because he'll like that. It'll be fun.
1: So you were lying on the bed as they'd gone out to this candy store. Could you hear the bomb explosion from your hotel room?
0: No, I couldn't hear it, but it's the most popular day. It's one of the biggest days in Boston of the year, so they have rolling coverage on the television, and I was laying on the bed watching people stagger across the finish line and all the celebrations, and then you heard and saw something horrific, and listen, I'm a bogan chick from Newcastle. Terrorist attack is not the first thing that goes through my mind when I see something like that, and all I could see was that big blue M M&M and M at that candy store. And the footbath just covered in claret and other stuff. And I just thought, oh my God, that that's where the boys were. I know that's exactly where they were going. Is that claret theirs? Are those bits and pieces theirs? I was trying to look for Charlie's pram in all of it to see if any of it was if they were there or if any of it was theirs. And um and then they kind of panned away and I, I rang Dorsey's phone and he's always got it on him and, you know, it costs a lot of money to ring someone overseas. So you don't want to do it unless it's important. I thought this is pretty important. I rang his phone. I think I rang it seven times and every time I rang, it did something different. It cut out or it went to voicemail or it rang out and I just kind of went into a blind panic and I thought there's no point me leaving the room because at least I'm safe. They know where I am. But it was just trying to get a hold of them. And I was probably about 20 minutes later, and my phone rang, and it was Dawsey. And he said, We're okay, we're being held. And when we can get out of here, when we're allowed to go, when it's safe, we'll come straight back to the room. And I probably saw him and Charlie about an hour later.
1: So um, so three people were killed that day and hundreds of people were injured. How had your husband and little boy come through that okay?
0: So my husband, bless his cotton socks, hates crowds. So he got up to, towards the candy store on Ballston and saw the crowds and saw it five or ten deep and said no. Nah, we're not doing that, Chuch. I'll go and get you a milkshake instead. So they, just off Boylston Street, there's a set of escalators that go up to a food court and a shopping centre. And he went up into that food court and they were sitting in the food court having a milkshake. Charlie was watching his iPad. They heard the explosion and they saw the fallout and people started running up the escalators off the street, up to, up the escalators into the shopping centre. And somebody said, I think someone's got a gun. So that was the panic set off in the food court. And my husband said that people were tipping chairs and tables on top of themselves, trying to avoid whatever was coming and hide from whatever possibly was coming. And my husband started to run in one direction and a security guard said, no, come this way and took them into a, into a courtyard or a sort of a safe place. And him and a lot of other Diners were held in that space until it was safe to leave.
1: And then he called you.
0: Uh, he called me when he was in that in that safe space. Yes. Oh
1: God, I can't. Given that you'd seen that very shop he was heading to sort of blown up and disintegrated, yeah. I just wonder if that was one of the worst twenty twenty minutes of your life in between discovering what had happened and getting that phone call.
0: Yeah, it really was, and you sort of saw the explosion go off, and I, I tried not to panic, and I tried not to think the worst, but we were staying on the 17th floor of our hotel, and I remember looking out the window. We looked down onto Massachusetts Avenue, and I remember seeing emergency vehicle after vehicle after vehicle come around the corner. And you know in action movies, when they come around the corners and slide out from underneath <laughs> themselves? That's what they were doing, and right, I just that really watched... does happen, right. <laughs> yeah, I just watched car after car do that. And I just, this is, this is big. Because sometimes my husband always says I have a tendency to overreact. So I was hoping that I was just overreacting. But when I saw that, I knew that something really big had gone down and it was so great to find the boys and find that they were safe. But we're also there with all our racers and our friends and our organisers. And we're a pretty tight knit community, the marathon community and the wheelchair racing community. So The hours that followed just trying to get in contact with everybody to make sure that they were safe were also daunting. And I suppose you were
1: getting calls from home too because it was international news, the bombing of the Boston Marathon.
0: Yeah, and pretty horrible to have to ring my mum when it was 5 o'clock in the morning here and say, there's been an explosion, I think a bomb's gone off. And my mum is, I'm sure she panics internally, but whenever something goes really wrong and she's the first person i call she is just such a voice of calm for me and she says well chris you know maybe it was just a a gas bottle has gone off in a restaurant maybe it's really not as bad as you think and she really is my voice of calm but i was she wasn't seeing what i was seeing on the television and what i'd seen so i knew that even though she wanted it to be something little that it absolutely was anything other than that
1: you're still in the middle of a city that was a a massive crime scene. What was the feeling on the streets like in the next few days?
0: Frightening. We were obviously all told to go to our hotel rooms and stay there because they hadn't caught these guys. Boston is on the Monday, on Patriots Day. We weren't leaving to fly out to London until the Wednesday night. So we still had a few days and we had a toddler in a hotel room, which is not the easiest thing. And the hotel ran out of room service. So we kind of had to leave our room and go out. And there were army tanks, police, police with guns on every single corner. You couldn't cross the road without having to show your ID everywhere you went. And they were telling us, be careful, don't go near bins, don't congregate in large areas where somebody might do this again with a lot of people. So it was really frightening, but you just, you still have to eat and you still have to entertain a toddler and kind of go on like nothing's happened but I was really happy to get on that plane and fly away. <laughs> so.
1: Does your little boy Charlie have any memory of this?
0: Um, He does talk about it very occasionally. I don't know whether he actually remembers it or whether he just talks about what he's been told about, but I do remember... Not long after we got home, we were watching the television and an ad came on for a war film and there were a bunch of soldiers running towards the camera and bombs going off in the background and Charlie said, look, mummy, that's your race. And I mm. went, oh, God. I, I think, you know, the, the panic that my husband felt, he's a pretty cool, calm guy, but the panic that he would have felt in that moment that goes through your body, I think that sort of thing stays with you. I know certainly it stayed with me. So it's probably there with him somewhere. But I think he just likes to tell his mates that he dodged terrorists and dodged a bomb. And I think it's kind of like a badge of honour to him, whereas I see it very differently.
1: You're in Newcastle now, Christy. Is that where you grew up?
0: Yes, I grew up in Newcastle on the western shores of Lake Macquarie. Some might say it was the dodgy side. Um, There's
1: a dodgy side of Lake Macquarie?
0: Well, it used to be back in the 80s. A lot of people would have heard of Toronto, Toronto. Um, so I grew up a little place near the lake called Marmong Point, uh, very working class. We weren't rich, but we weren't poor. We had everything we needed, but not everything we wanted. And we had plenty of love and support, but we, we live very close to a set of commission housing units. And a lot of the kids that went to my local primary school were from those commission housing units. And I think even though we weren't Rich, we certainly realised how lucky we were to have a mum and a dad and clean sheets, clean clothes, food on the table every night and an abundance of love. Yeah, it was a bit of an eye-opener growing up next to a, a housing estate.
1: Was the lake a place you went down to very often to play?
0: Not overly. We backed on to the bush, which has now been developed into all these McMansions. But um, we spent a lot of time in the bush, a little bit of time fishing with Dad down at the lake, I don't swim in the lake because what we pulled out of there often terrified me. <laughs> I thought, why on earth would you swim in like a body what? of water? What? Oh, crabs and oh. eels and just gross stuff. And, I thought um, you'd been are, saying this,
1: something like a dead drug dealer or something like that. <laughs> oh, look, there's
0: been more than one body pulled out of there, but right. um, yeah, just things that I wouldn't want um, swimming around at my feet. So I <laughs> steered clear of that most of the time, but good memories of I was a real tomboy, so lots of BMX riding and climbing trees and you know doing stupid stuff like running through stormwater drains and stuff that we all tell our kids not to do because it could kill you and has but um, just a a pretty outdoor lifestyle. We got a pool when I was about six or seven and we had a cranky old neighbour. My sister and I would come home from school of an afternoon. We'd go and throw our cozies on and put the music up in the pool yard and run around and do bombs and splash and just make kid noise and we'd have this cranky neighbour who we know when he'd get really cranky because all of a sudden you'd hear the barrel of the gun slide over the top of the fence and he'd go, you bloody kids, <laughs> shut up or I'll shoot you. And we'd go, come on, shoot us, shoot us. <laughs> and then we'd hear the gun go and he'd cock it. And it was like, if you just played the Benny Hill music, it was just like a scene out of that. And now you think, yeah. oh my God, if someone pointed a gun at my kids, I would. <laughs> Freak out and call a current affair, but in the eighties, that was our entertainment. We would rile him up so much to get his gun out. Oh my god!
1: Character building for you, and uh, you're better. You're a better human being for it, I think. Yeah,
0: I'm very <laughs> agile now.
1: <laughs> you know how to get to A from A to B at quite yeah. a good pace as a result <laughs> yeah. of that. That's, so, exactly. So it was a recipe for middle success down the track.
0: Yeah. No you,
1: doubt. you talked about your mum earlier. What, what sort of man was your dad?
0: I was um, I was nine when my dad passed away, and I probably have different memories to some of the memories of my family, but I remember him as a great dad until my son came along. My dad was one of the funniest people I knew, hands down. Very good with his hands. He was an electrician. He worked for telecom, and I was a dad's girl, absolutely a dad's girl, and always there for me. Just to have good conversations and um, always doing something creative. He was a good bloke.
1: What was it that troubled him?
0: Um, I don't know. I wish he'd lived a bit longer and I could have, could have got a bit older to ask him that. But I think probably his upbringing, maybe his parents, nobody's parent of the year, but um, they probably could have done better in some aspects. But... As he got older, he started to, I guess, deal with that through drinking. And he loved his Winfield Reds and um, let's make a pack or two a day. And he loved his Tuwies. And that was just who he was. He'd come home and he'd have a drink and he'd have a smoke. And I don't ever really remember him often being rolling drunk. He was quite a functional, happy drunk as far as I remember. But he always come home and make dinner and do what needed to be done. Yeah.
1: What do you remember about his death and how you discovered it?
0: Uh, I remember going to bed two days before my ninth birthday, 1st of May, 1989. We lived in a two-storey house, so all the living was upstairs and the garage was downstairs. I remember standing on the top step and looking down At my dad and saying, I'm going to bed now. And he just popped his head out of the door of the garage. So that's all I could see. I said, I'm going to bed. He said, Righto, see you in the morning. I got into bed, fell asleep. I don't know what time it was. I woke up and I could hear my sister was always obsessed with Bon Jovi and Madonna, you know, the late 80s. And I could hear Madonna playing and the song was like a prayer. And I remember hearing. Um, my sister being very upset and panicked and some screaming. And I remember waking up and said, what's wrong? And she said, nothing's wrong. Dad's just had an accident. Go back to bed, go back to bed. And I never did what my sister said, but, uh, that night I did. I went back to bed and I woke up and my auntie from Sydney was standing in my doorway my auntie Nancy, and she was a reverend for the Uniting Church, and she had a big, full life in Sydney. And we didn't see her that often every Christmas, but if she was coming, we would have known. So, when I woke up and saw her, I knew something was really wrong. I went out into the lounge room, and my whole family were there, and I sat on my mum's lap, and she told me that during the night my dad had passed away. So um, that's all I knew, and at the moment I didn't. Ask how or why. I didn't ask any of the details. I think we were all just overcome with grief. And I could see that my mum didn't need to be hammered with questions. So we just spent the time together. But two days later, on my birthday, on the 3rd of May, I wanted to go back to school. I did that. I was in year four. And I remember some kids coming up to me and saying, Your dad killed himself. And I I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what that was. But one of the kids in my class, his dad was a police officer, and that officer had attended the scene of dad's suicide. And he had come home and told his son. So that's how I found out how my dad had died was at school. So not ideal.
1: How did your mum manage after that?
0: You know, she is, and to look at her now, she's, she's a cuddly grandmother who would do anything for you, very unassuming. But she is absolutely the strongest person I know. She she just carried on. I mean, of course, we had family support, which was great and probably is the reason why this adversity has made me become a strength of mine rather than a demon. But she just she was so strong. I remember her still going and doing a full day's work. She worked full time. She was an accountant for H&R Block, doing a full day's work, coming home in winter. It was dark. It was cold. She'd be carrying all the groceries. Her fingers would be purple because the groceries were so heavy with those plastic bags. She'd come home, she'd unpack, she'd cook tea, she'd bath us, sort us out, put us to bed. And I remember I'd get up sometimes and I'd see her in the mustard orange lounge chair sitting in front of the heater and she'd have poured herself a glass of wine and she would be too tired to even drink it. And she'd be laying there asleep and we'd wake her up just as the wine was about to spill. And she'd go, oh, oh, yeah, I'm coming to bed now, I'm coming to bed now. But I never saw her cry or be sad or angry. She just went into practical mode and got it done. And we we always felt so loved and supported But she just got it done and I honestly don't know how she did it. As a mum and a wife now, I put myself in her shoes and I, Richard, I don't know how she did it. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations
1: with Richard Feidler. Not long after you lost your dad, your family was in a terrible car accident. Tell me what happened and what you remember about that day.
0: Um... Dad had died 11 months before our accident. And we I think as a family, um, my sister in high school, me in primary school, we were just having trouble finding a new normal and finding a groove. And mum, Easter holidays were coming up and mum said, you know what, let's just get in the car and we'll go up and see friends of ours at Heaven's Head and we'll just have a holiday and just try and reset. We left early in the morning on the 9th of April, 1990, I don't know why this sticks out in my mind so much, but we stopped at Hexham McDonald's near Newcastle and for some reason we bought 10 hash browns and that just seemed excessive to me for three people. (laughs) But um, we bought the 10 hash browns and got our bellies full and continued on our way. And I remember it had been raining and the road was wet. The car was full and we'd taken extra bedding. So I remember being cuddled up in the back with dooners and pillows and... Really cozy and comfy. My sister was in the front. My mum was driving, obviously, and I didn't have my seatbelt on. And my mum said, Put your bloody seatbelt on. We could have an accident. You never know what's going to happen. So I re- begrudgingly put my seatbelt on the middle seatbelt, the lap belt. And then I got myself comfy and laid down across the back seat in amongst all the pillows and dooners and fell asleep. I woke up and it was chaos. I remember my sister looking back at me and she was bleeding from the eye and the face. And, you know, there were people with the jaws of life trying to get the door open, my mum's making noises I'd never heard her make before. And it was obvious we'd had an accident. And at the time, it was, it was funny that I remember my sister looking back at me and saying, we've had an accident. So I sort of remember thinking... No shit, Sherlock, obviously. Yeah. We've had an accident. What, what,
1: ha- what had happened?
0: So I had fallen asleep and we were rounding a corner. Apparently a dog ran out onto the road and the road was wet. Mum did not swerve. She braked. And when she braked, we slid and we slid onto the wrong side of the road and had a head on with an oncoming car. On impact, I was thrown up and back. Uh, the seatbelt saved me from being thrown out of the car, but it ultimately damaged my spinal cord and broke my back and caused some pretty catastrophic internal injuries. And a lady in the other car passed away. Her husband was seriously hurt, as was my mum. My sister was hurt, but not too badly. But, yes, very messy scene.
1: So what did being in spinal rehab look like to you as a 10-year-old kid?
0: Looking back, it probably wasn't too bad. The first month where I had to lay flat on my back was pretty horrible I couldn't even really turn my head or everybody had to turn me i'd have six people come in every couple of hours and turn me and they were all dressed in masks and green suits and it was pretty frightening as a little kid my mum was quite unwell so she wasn't with me for a while but then i was allowed to get up and start doing my rehab and usually through the rehab unit they have one kid go through with a permanent spinal injury every three years. And in this year, they had three girls in the one year, eight-, nine-, and ten-year-old we were. So we actually just ran amok. So instead of rehab, physio, <laughs> occupational therapy, hydrotherapy being a drag and a, and a burden and overwhelming, it was actually just a race for us to see who could do things the quickest and, and who could achieve something more quickly. You know, I was a paraplegic, so I lost the use of my legs from just below my waist down. But I don't think it was ever lost on us when we looked around the rehab ward, even as a 10-year-old, at just how lucky we were because there were people in there who had Christopher Reeve-type injuries who were on respirators and oxygen and couldn't breathe on their own. So the fact that we'd just lost the use of our legs, but ultimately we would grow to be strong, fit, healthy humans... I feel really, really lucky.
1: Have you remained friends with any of those girls you went through rehab with?
0: Yes. Uh, We don't see each other very often, but Angie Ballard is one of those girls and she's on the Paralympic team for uh, Tokyo this year. So uh, she's a racer as well. And Joanna Chapman is another girl. She's on the Central Coast, got a couple of kids, got a job. You know, we've just got boring lives. Thankfully, our lives are mundanely boring and look pretty normal. But Do you, you think that you know, the when fact you,
1: that you were sharing that space, with those girls just determined so much about the life that was to come for you and for them as well?
0: Yeah. And I think we had that really unique bond that we'd all had car accidents. Joanna had lost her mum in the accident. Angie's mum had been hurt in the accident. So we were all really coming from a very similar place and all having incredibly similar injuries. I actually remember my rehab as a kid, as a pretty positive time.
1: So given that you'd been sporty before the accident, why was the sport of wheelchair racing the one that really grabbed you?
0: I think the perception when you have an injury like mine or you you have an injury that leaves you with a lifelong permanent disability, the perception is that you will be sick and slow and poorly and clumsy. And I loved the sport of wheelchair track and road racing because it was a complete contradiction. And it flew in the face of everything that people expected me to now be because I used a wheelchair and was a paraplegic. I looked at Lou, Louise Sauvage, and those girls going around the track at the Barcelona Paralympics in 1992. And it was fast and rough and tactical and there were crashes. And I just looked at that and, you know, coming from a kid who was a real tomboy and who would ride down hills without a helmet and, you know, legs on my handlebars and that sort of stuff. I thought, this is the sport for me. This is the sport for me.
1: Well, so one thing I've often heard from people who are blind, for example, one of the most, the biggest nuisances they have in their lives is the anxiety that's non-disabled people have around them about their perceived fragility. Is that one way, doing this kind of (laughs) hair-raising sport, high-speed and intensely tough and competitive sport, one way of kind of defeating that perception of fragility that unfairly tends to cling to disabled people?
0: Yes, absolutely. You've got to hit the nail right on the head. And also, I think it, it really has helped to break down the barriers for Paralympic sport to help the general public realise that it's not just participation based. We're not just getting in there and having a go. We're actually competitive human beings. We have drive and determination and goals just like our able-bodied counterparts, just like everybody else. And Paralympics doesn't mean paraplegic. It means parallel. So the level of our sport, of Paralympic sport, is parallel to that of our able-bodied counterparts. And I think that is why I do this sport because it shines such a spotlight on the positive side of, of disability rather than, as you say, assuming that we're fragile and we're going to break.
1: So if you take a, a, a pretty nasty spill in wheelchair racing, I'm imagining it's nice to get some help, but you can do without the anxiety and freaking out around you having taken the spill then.
0: Yes. And Even when I'm in public, I remember I I had most of my stacks in my day chair when I was heavily pregnant with my kids because, you know, you know, when you're pregnant, your (laughs) center of gravity is off balance and all that sort of stuff. And I remember being out jogging one (laughs) day in my...
1: (laughs) That would actually make me freak
0: (laughs) (laughs) I had my headphones in and my iPod in, so I was, had my cords around me. And I often, when I jog in my day chair, I put an Occhi strap across my feet because it stops my feet from... Vibrating off and tripping me. And I was quite, I was probably about eight months pregnant. I remember jogging along the foreshore and I just hit a rock or something and it flipped me out. And this elderly couple behind me went, Oh my God. And I heard her say, The girl in the wheelchair's fallen out. And then I, when I rolled over, I was heavily pregnant. She's like, Oh my God. God, she's pregnant. And then because I had my iPod on, I'm all tangled in my headphones and I'm tangled in my footrest, so I just looked a hot mess. And I was fine and I knew I hadn't fallen on my belly, but when we have a tumble, it looks oh so spectacular as to when somebody just slips over. So people do tend to panic. They can't help themselves.
1: So you competed in your first Paralympics at just 16. Was that with your inspiration, Louise Sauvage?
0: Yes, she was right there. And I went over, not not expected to medal. And I don't think I even made a final back then, but it was really just to get that experience of being in a Paralympic village, going through the process of being in a call room, because it's really much different. When you first join the Paralympic movement, it can be a bit of an eye opener. I mean, people freak out when they see a a leg amputee in the middle of coals, let alone, (laughs) you know, let alone a dining room filled with 5,000 people with something missing or something that doesn't work. It's it's quite an eye-opener, but it really does make you realise how lucky you are to have the disability that you have and to live in the country with the services that you have.
1: Well a few years later your coach Andrew became your partner and and now your husband. Does that get a bit intense having your spouse as your coach? How does it go over when he wants you to when he tells you to do something or asks you to do something? How does that work?
0: It's mixed. We've been doing it a long time. <laughs> we've been doing it for a long time now that we're not too bad, but I always joke that if you see us out training and we're a few hundred meters apart, it's because we've had a blue. He tends not to hold on to anything where I'm a typical woman, so I'll hold a grudge for, you know, at least until dinner time. But it's worked pretty well, and I think it's worked well because it's an objective sport when it comes to selection. It's not gymnastics where it's subjective and it's based on, you know, how good somebody thinks you are. There's times there and you either make them or you don't. So when people say, oh, well, he's playing favourites, that's never been a factor in our sport because it's completely objective. It ultimately comes down to times and that's it.
1: You'd been to Atlanta. How keen were you to compete in the Sydney 2000 Paralympic Games?
0: Yeah, really keen. I finished school and the day that I finished high school, I moved to Sydney, packed up the car with my pots and pans and my dry glow towels and got a unit down there. And for 18 months, just trained. I barely saw my family. I lived in North Sydney in amongst all the cafes and restaurants and nightlife and I barely went out. I just put everything into training and figured that if I focused 100% that nothing could go wrong.
1: And what happened?
0: Yeah, it went to crap, Richard. Um, (laughs) I got to the Games and it's... For an athlete to be involved in any Olympic or Paralympic Games is amazing. But if you're lucky enough to be at the top of your sport and have a home Games, to have that coincide, that's really special. So all of my friends and family were there. And that's great if you do well. But when you do terribly... It's horrible having to find your family in the stands when, when you've just had a terrible race. And I didn't even make a final in Sydney and I didn't even do a, a personal best time. So I couldn't even come away from the game saying, well, I, I did a PB. So that was a real eye-opener for me and a really good lesson to learn at a very young age. What was a lesson? What, did
1: you, what do you think you did wrong?
0: I think I just put all my eggs in one basket and had a real lack of balance. And I probably thought too much of myself that I could really, really meddle and really do something great at the games, but I I didn't. So that was a real lesson in balance for me. So I finished the games, sulked for a couple of weeks, and then decided that I needed to have something else in my life rather than just one thing. Because when you fall, when you've only got one thing, you fall pretty hard, so that's the importance of balance. So I enrolled in a TAFE course of childcare. Took my forms down. A couple of days later, I got a phone call from TAFE. Oh, we'd like to have a meeting with you. Wow, they're treating their their students really nicely. And I got in there, and all these very fancy dressed women who spoke and seemed much more educated than me said, "Yeah, yeah, no, you can't do childcare." And I said, "Why not?" And they go, "Well, you're in a wheelchair." They said. You can't pick up children or change nappies. You can't set up activities. And my God, what if you ran over one of them? And they said, listen, have you heard of the internet? They said, we think this thing's really going to take off. Have you thought about doing IT? And I said, yeah. I said, people are never going to start buying things off the internet. How ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) I said, "Um, yeah, that's never going to fly. I said, no, I want to do childcare, so let me do it. So they let me do it. They watched me like a hawk. And I topped the course. I got offered a job off my, my pracs and I went on to do my diploma and then went on to, to uni to do my degree and um, taught for a few years and then had my own kids and realised that I didn't want to work with them all day and then come home to them. So,
1: so you made it uh, uh, to Beijing in 2008. Now I've watched that race you were in. There was a spectacular crash. Yes. What did that look like from the track, from your point of view?
0: messy, painful. Yeah. Not Luckily it wasn't painful for me, but basically we were coming up with a lap to go. So we had 500 metres to go. The Swiss girl was in lane two and leading at the front and she come was coming out of the corner. She hit her steering, but missed it. And so instead of hitting the straight, she continued on a corner trajectory and took out, everyone that was in lane one and everyone that was behind her. So basically apart from four or five athletes, she took out the entire pack. I ran straight over the top of the girl in front of me who was Wakako Toshida, the Japanese athlete. I ran over her head and her back oh. and my front, she ripped her my front tyre off with her head and I caused some really bad injuries to her back. And um, there's a photo of me, with my competitors sprawled all over the track and me just kind of sitting in the middle looking like I've beat them all up and I'm sort of sitting there saying, who's next? But it was, um, unfortunately, that is the nature of the beast. It's like we see with the Tour de France, there's crashes all the time and you just get up and keep going. We had some girls to, um, Wakako was taken out for the rest of the games, I believe, with that, um, with the back injury. But um, that's the nature of the beast.
1: I don't think until I saw the crash that I realised how fast everyone goes in that event. And then I sort of thought, trying to see it from your point of view, you're moving at really high speeds, much closer to the ground than someone who's up and running and w- would be doing. Which I suppose is part of the thing that must make the crashes kind of so, so fierce and so, and so dangerous at the same time.
0: Look, they are very few and far between. That was the most spectacular crash that I've ever been involved in and probably one of the most spectacular I've seen across the board between men and women. But a lot of these girls are very well trained. We've all been doing it for a really long time. We're technically skilled. And when you miss something as simple as your steering, it's just a Technical glitch can happen to anybody, and the pressure's on. You've got 500 to go. You just you think about smacking that steering, and if you just miss it, then it's catastrophe. But I have a lot of faith in the girls that I race with; that they do the right thing, and that most of the time they get it bang on. So, yeah,
1: Christy, I think Australians are wonderful people by and large. But I think no other country in the world will complete strangers walk up to you and say something that's so possibly rude than Australia. I think Australians are particularly (laughs) evil at this. Does this happen to you? Do strangers sometimes feel free to walk up to you while you're in your wheelchair and offer you some free advice or free commentary?
0: Yes. I'm a mum of two kids. I've got three or four different jobs. I'm trying to have the training schedule of a professional athlete. So I've got a lot on my mind. So when I'm in the middle of the supermarket and somebody comes up to me and says, God, what have you done to yourself? I'm kind of wiping my chin or looking at the back of my pants to see nothing, you know, nothing's going on. I haven't made a mess of myself. And and I go, what do you mean? Have I got something on my face? And they go, oh, what, why, what have you done to yourself? Why are you in a chair? And I think the thing that draws people's attention to you is often the least interesting thing about you, whether you're in a chair or missing a leg or the colour of your skin or what you wear due to religious, if religion dictates that, it really is the least interesting thing about you. And believe it or not, people with disabilities are not thinking about their disability 100% (laughs) of the time. No.
1: How about it when it goes the other way, Christy? Do people ever feel the need to tell you that you're inspirational?
0: Yeah, they do. And I think I had a young girl and her dad come up to me in the supermarket just last Friday, the day that I got announced on the team, and I never get recognized in the supermarket. So the day that the Paralympics team was announced, I was buying watermelon and a guy walked up and said, are you Christy Dawes? And I said, yes. And his daughter said, can I get a photo with you, please? I really love you. And I was so excited, got a photo with young Ava. She was gorgeous. And that sort of thing, when people are inspired by what I do on the track or the road, that's great. I love it. And if I can inspire a young kid to go on and follow their athletic dreams, great. But when I'm with my kids and I'm not looking my best and I might have my cranky voice on, my mum voice, and I'm buying potatoes and somebody walks up to me and says, oh, can I just say how inspirational you are (laughs) to be out you know, buying potatoes? I think that annoys me a little bit. And look, 99% of the time when people ask if they can help me, it's only because they're wanting to do good. But I think when people are inspired by me buying potatoes and dragging my kids around the shopping centre, I think we need to have a look at how high our expectations are of people with disabilities. Our expectations are pretty low if we think it's great that somebody's just going out and doing their shopping. The perception needs to change. And that just becomes a basic expectation. Yes, why wouldn't somebody in a wheelchair be out doing their own groceries and out getting a job and working and, um, you know, making a living for themselves and being as independent as they can. And people will often ask me if I want help. And to them, it looks hard and difficult. But to me, I have a system for everything I do. It's swift. It's clean, I've got it down and it might look complicated to you, but to me, it works. And often if people come and help without asking, it just buggers up my system. So when when I say I've got it, do you want help? And I say, I've got it. And then they go, are you sure? And I go, yes, I've got it. It means I've got it.
1: Have you ever had any disabled car park spot issues?
0: Constantly. There aren't many supermodels like myself who are in <laughs> wheelchairs. So <laughs> when I pull up into a disabled park, I often get filthy looks about the fact that this person doesn't look disabled. I don't have my chair on my roof of my car or anything like that. So people often come up and say, you know, that's a disabled park. And, I, and I'm lucky that I have a very tangible visual defence for that when I pull my chair out and I just say, yeah, thanks for keeping it free for me. Oh, my God, what do they so say much. when
1: they see that? They must feel terrible once they've They do.
0: <laughs> they do really feel terrible. And there was an instance once with... We pulled into a disabled spot with my son and my daughter and it was a really hot day. I had the window down. There was a woman beside me trying to put together her father's wheelchair. It looked brand spanking new. He's obviously just needing it. She had no idea how to put it together and she's fighting with this thing. And I pull up with my window down and my kids, you know, and she looked at me and she just absolutely scowled at me as if to say, really, you're going to park in a disabled park? (laughs) And my son sticks his head out the window and he said to this lady, excuse me, but what are you doing? What are you building? And she scowled at him and she said, I'm trying to put together my father's wheelchair. And he looked at her and he said, oh, my God. He was so excited. He said, have you got a cripple? And he pats me on the head when he's st- sitting on my lap and he goes, I've got one too, as if to say we should get together and talk about our cripples. He was so excited. And then I proceeded to get my chair out and this woman just, I could see her just shrinking by the second. And I, she just kind of smiled and I said, would you like a hand to put your dad's chair together? And she goes, oh, my God, I would love a hand. So I helped to put her put a dad's chair together and she didn't. <laughs> verbally apologize, but I could tell that she was she was really sorry and um my son just kind of really broke the ice so
1: I that was so nice. and what do you what do you think about that kind of language? I mean is a it's just a boy's home. <laughs> what did you what do you think about how important is to use the right language in such circumstances
0: like that. Oh look I'm um, i I am guilty of using it. I mean, a disabled park to me will always be a cripple park. I would never say, oh, look at that cripple over there. But I think we get so caught up in semantics and we think that if we use the right words, then we can basically say whatever we like, no matter how patronising, derogatory or discriminative it is, as long as we say the right words, we can say whatever we want. And I've been around the Paralympic movement for a long time and you honestly if you cried and took everything so seriously you would just you wouldn't last so we all have nicknames for each other and that's one of the the names or the groups that gets called and i like my son to use language that he doesn't hear because i'm being discriminated against people are so focused on the disability that in our life, we just need something that is a little bit lighter sometimes. And it's certainly not our everyday language, but sometimes you just need it.
1: Christy, I really wish you all the best. It's been so lovely speaking with you. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks, Richard. An absolute pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations.
1: Hello, I'm Patrick Stack, and if you enjoy quality storytelling and you enjoy sport, then I reckon you need ABC Sport Daily in your life. He leaves with a 15% record of senior coach, which isn't going to cut the mustard at any level. It's your daily sports conversation. Now the Blues are sitting
0: around thinking, how the hell has this happened again? How the hell have we come up to Lang Park and been ambushed again? How how can it be an ambush if we know it's coming and we knew it was coming, but it happened
1: anyway? Each episode, we're bringing you one sports story in depth in under 15 minutes.
0: It's um, fascinating when you break it down to those minute levels...
1: This is your daily
0: sports conversation and it's called ABC Sport Daily. You can find us on the Listen app.